welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. This week, we will continue our series on the course I'm giving at Hilltown Baptist Church called God and Government. This week is week three, where we look at the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and consider what it's about and who's involved in it, when it's taking place, what it looks like, things like that. So, without further ado, week three of God and Government. All right, welcome everyone to week three of our God and Government series. Lots to cover today, might not get through it all. Uh, so, if I don't get to your passage of scripture, just hold on to it till next time and <laughs> we'll, we'll finish it off next time. Got a lot to cover. All right, so we are going to be covering today uh, the kingdom of of heaven or the kingdom of God. As a uh, quick rundown, we've covered introduction to sphere sovereignty in uh, week one. Uh, the spheres of individual government, self-government, uh, self family government, church government, and the civil government. We've looked at their overlap and where they have certain boundaries and where they fail sometimes and what happens when they fail. And we kind of ended on a kind of depressing note, we looked at the issue of, of idolatry, the rise of, of, of Babel, essentially, uh, all throughout the, the Bible. We have uh, men like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar. We looked at the early Roman Empire, where Caesar was hailed as a savior of mankind to bring peace on earth. And uh, we see how the tendency, because if there is no if there's no God who's going to save us and who's going to fix this broken world, the only solution is for human will and human power to do it. And the greatest um, uh, uh, um, example of human power is government. That's the the greatest uh, the pinnacle, if you will, of human power and human strength. And so we see a tendency over time for any government to begin to take upon itself the role of the church, the role of the family and to uh, make individuals just atomistic, so they're just random, uh, free-floating, autonomous individuals, and it's more of a realm of chaos, and it requires more and more coercion and power to hold this whole thing together. But the solution to this problem of Babel is, of course, the Lord. And I wanted to start off with a well-known passage from Isaiah chapter, chapter 9, verses 6 through seven, which reads as follows, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So. This kingdom, this government, this kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, whatever you wish to call it, what does that look like? Well, I want to begin with what are the qualities of a kingdom? And if you just, just reflect on it a, a bit, I mean, what what is a kingdom? A kingdom has a king. That's important. You need to have that. A kingdom has a land. A kingdom has a people. And a kingdom has a law. It's the king's law, right? And it's interesting that in the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives the uh, Great Commission to his disciples, to the 11 disciples, since uh, Judas had essentially just uh, just killed himself. 
Uh, and so Jesus talks to these 11 disciples. Most of them are blue-collar workers, fishermen. Uh, later on, uh, he'll add a seminary-trained individual, the Apostle Paul, uh, to, to join them. But he says this, he says, uh, Matthew 28, 18-20, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so if you break that Great Commission down, we have a king. All authority has been given to me, to Jesus. He has all authority. He's the king uh, in heaven and on earth. So that's his domain. That's his land, if you will. It's not just a small geographic location in some part of the Middle East. It is in heaven and on earth. It's, it's all of it. And we're to go and make disciples of all nations. So he's got a people. Uh, he's got some people already that are his citizens, but now he's got to go, go get some more. He's got a whole bunch more to bring in uh, to the kingdom, to make disciples. And then he's got a law. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to be baptized and to obey all that God has commanded. So kind of breaking it down uh, step by step, the first thing we want to look at, as I brought up five passages that talk about Christ as king, um, and the question we have to answer before we look at these passages, and these passages will help us answer is, well, you know, he already he has authority in heaven and on earth. How did he get it? Uh, why does he have it? Does scripture say anything about where this authority came from? And so I just want to walk through uh, these five passages regarding that. So if someone would please read Luke 11, 14 through 23, and we'll begin. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against himself, even, sorry, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own place, sorry, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divided, divides the spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Thank you. And I know that Pastor Tim has preached on this passage a few months ago, I, I suppose by now. But we see there that uh, Jesus is being accused of using the power of Satan to destroy Satan or to attack Satan. And he kind of highlights the, just the craziness of that idea. Uh, it wouldn't be, you know, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And that Jesus is the one that's coming to bind the strong man. The strong man is secure in his, his palace or his fortress. And that is an allusion to, to Satan. And Jesus is the one that is basically binding him and, and robbing him of his stuff, taking, uh, taking stuff from Satan uh, for himself. Uh, next passage, Colossians 1, 15-20, please. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God has pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thank you. So we see a lot of a lot of all there. All things, principalities, powers, um, heaven, earth, and the reconciliation takes place by the blood of the cross. So we get a, a kind of a hint there. So in, in Luke we see that he's casting out demons, he's exercising uh, strength and power over Satan, um, taking dominion over Satan there. And then in Colossians we see this by the blood of the cross. He has um, brought these things under his authority, and all things were made by him and for him. So uh, in, in him they were all hold together in him. Uh, next passage, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, please. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, <coughs> having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against you, which was contrary to taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Yeah, he made a public spectacle of all those powers, disarming them, uh, triumph, triumphing over them by the power of the cross, by the blood of the cross. So again, uh, Satan thought that he had won, but Jesus accomplished victory uh, through the cross. So what looked like a great defeat turned out to be a great victory instead. Uh, next passage is Ephesians 1, 15-23, please. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, of the glory of his inheritance in, in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, and when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and, uh, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave to him to be head of over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thank you. So we see, yeah, uh, connection with the, cru the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And it's interesting that we see he's above every name that is named, and not only in this age, the, pre the present age, 
but also in the one to come. And all things are put under his feet. So again, it's this idea of complete authority, dominion, and power over, over everything. Uh, last passage, 1 Peter 3, 21 to 22, please. Yeah. Again, Christ at the right hand of God, all authorities have been subjected to him. So if Christ is Lord, what does that mean? It, it means that he has something to say about every aspect of life. And as Christians, we're not making him king. We're not calling people to make him king. He already is king. In a sense, it's not a democracy. We're not voting. Uh, it's not trying to, we're not going from door to door trying to get votes for Jesus. Uh, we're proclaiming that Jesus is already the king and people are either they're, they're rebels and they need to submit and bow the knee to that king uh, and the king offers mercy right now and there's plenty of time for mercy and we have to choose whether we're going to live as citizens of the king or if we're going to eventually be judged as rebels against the king. Uh, the king is coming back uh, and right now he's given us time to repent and to obey. So we see that as uh, Christ is the king over his kingdom. But now, what about the land of the kingdom? We mentioned all authority in heaven and earth. Um, let's read some of these passages. Luke 17, 20 through 21, please. <clears throat> Did I hand that one out? Oh. <laughs> if you don't have one, raise your hand while she turns to it. That's all right. We got a few few minutes here. Yeah. It's in the midst of us because Jesus is in the midst of us. The king is there. So there's the kingdom. It was here and it's still here because we are here and he is with us. As he said, uh, even in the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, so the Lord is still with us. Um, and this makes sense because he has authority both in heaven and on earth, not just some, some kingdom in the clouds out there somewhere, but, but actually here. Um, could someone please read John 18, 33 through 38? Yeah. So thank you. And some things to note there is that 
Jesus doesn't say that his kingdom is not there, not in the world, but it's not of the world. And in a, in a similar sense, we as Christians, we're in the world, but we're not of it either, right? We're, we're not supposed to live in accordance with the world's principles, but we are here and we have a job to do while we're here. Um, and it's interesting, I was just thinking of uh, some, some useful examples. Um, imagine if someone came up to you one day and said, there's a new king in Andorra. And, and uh, um, so? Yeah, okay. Where's Andorra? Well, I looked up. It's one of the smallest countries in the world. It's 180 square miles. It's, on, it's, in the, it's in the Pyrenees Mountains between France and Spain. It's a legit kingdom, a legit kingdom. 180 square miles, Andorra, right? But if there was a new king there, I don't think any of us would care. I mean, why would it matter to, to us? Because that king only has authority in that small little 180 square mile uh, uh, area, uh, which is thousands of miles from here and has no authority over us at all. So the reason why... Jesus' kingdom matters is because he actually is a king. He has legitimate authority. Uh, our land actually belongs to him. It's all his. And he is uh, the final authority on heaven and on earth. So uh, it should matter. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, and I think we would want to make sure that that person is telling the truth. Yeah. Because that's how that verse ended, telling us how important the truth is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, but, but if it was Andorra, I wouldn't care. <laughs> Whether it was legit or not, if it was a fake, you know, it's like, so what? Who cares if it's Andorra? It doesn't affect me at all, you know. But, but yeah, you're right. Because Jesus claims total authority, it does make sense that we need to speak the truth and also be able to, you know, prove it. And, and those who are going to say, well, what, what is, there's no such thing as truth. Well, then, of course, they're, they're not going to recognize the authority of, of him who is the, the way and the truth uh, and the life. Because he is the truth. And so, I mean, he's staring, Pilate is staring him in the face and refuses to uh, even recognize that. Uh, but thank you there. Um, uh, passage, uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 5, please. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of I thought that passage was very interesting looking through it because Revelation is a, obviously a very complicated book, but that very first chapter, it's certainly it's not speaking of anything future at that particular point. Those letters are going to the churches, and he's introducing the letter by saying Jesus is, not will be, but is the ruler of kings on earth. That's very interesting that the phrase on earth is actually in there, not just in heaven, but on earth. Um, now, another aspect of this kingdom. So we've seen that it's not just one small geographic location. It's it's the whole it's the whole realm of heaven and earth. But the kingdom is also expanding. And would someone please read Matthew 13, 31 through 33? Of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So we see two short parables there that talk about something being small, something growing over time and becoming quite full or large. You have yeast going through wheat to, uh, uh, to, make, uh, to make bread, uh, and we see the, the small seed becoming a, a large tree where the birds of the air uh, nest in it. And it's very interesting, uh, we'll get to the Daniel passage shortly, but there is one other passage in Daniel, I don't think it's the one that we're about to read, but uh, it's later on when Nebuchadnezzar is about to go crazy where Daniel gets a dream where there's a gigantic tree with all the birds of the air nesting in it, and then the tree gets, gets cut down. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the tree is him, that he's going to get cut down, he's going to be like an animal for seven years, uh, and then God will restore him at the, uh, um, when it's all done. And so you see a picture throughout Scripture of the concept of a tree with birds nesting in it is, is kingdom. That's kingdom kind of language. That's a reference to authority of Nebuchadnezzar, his power, and the fact that all the birds of the earth, the other nations, are resting in the branches of the kingdom of empire of, of Babylon. Uh, and so we see uh, it's, it's no small thing that Jesus is mentioning. Again, the seed that becomes a tree where the birds nest in it as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. But let's go to Daniel chapter 2, please. Uh, would someone read that? Your majesty looked, and there, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces, and became like chaff in a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king, your majesty. You are the king of kings, the god of heaven has given you dominion. I'm sorry, you are, yes, you are the king of kings. The god of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this would be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so the ki this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Yeah. Oh, sorry, till 45. Oh, and just as you saw um, the, uh, the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Yeah. So we see the picture of this, um, this statue, this multiple described metal statue, um, and then the small stone that's not made by human hands that smashes it, 
and then grows to be a mountain to fill the whole earth. Again, that same kind of description that we see with the mustard seed and with the leaven, this small size that slowly over time grows and fills the whole earth. And it's interesting, not made by human hands. Again, it's not of the world. It's not like Babel. Babel is a kingdom made by human hands where they, they make the bricks, they make the clay, and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. It's all mankind doing it themselves. But this is something that's done by God, not by man's hands, but by God's hands, that he's going to set up this, this kingdom that will never be destroyed, but will outlive all the others and grow to overwhelm all of them. So those are just a few passages there. Um, the next section, a kingdom has citizens, right? So what, okay, what does that citizenship look like? How does one become a citizen of this, of this kingdom, of the king? So let's uh, start with John 3, 1 through 7, please. So this citizenship, this entering of the kingdom is tied to salvation, it's tied to new birth. It's a, it's a citizenship by birth. Just like here in America, we have citizenship by birth, but this citizenship is by new birth in Christ, a spiritual new birth or salvation, if you will. And then one enters into the kingdom as a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, and you'll see this again. Could someone read Colossians 1, 13 through 14, please? Exactly. So the transfer is not a geographic transfer like one would transfer citizenship from the United States to Canada or Germany or something like that. This is a, this is a spiritual transfer from the, from the kingdom of darkness, uh, dead, dead in sins and trespasses, and then to the kingdom of, of light. And it's a transfer that God does uh, when he saves us and draws us to himself. Uh, the next passage, Acts 28, 23, 31, please. Hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal them. 
Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will obey. For two whole years, Paul stayed there with his own rank and file, and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's interesting, at the end of Acts, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, and so this kingdom is not spread by physical violence, like most normal earthly kingdoms are. It's spread by teaching, proclaiming, and preaching. So it's a spiritual conquest, not a physical of the world kind of conquest. And that goes into 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, if someone could read that, please. Yeah, strong language there, strong warlike language, but it's a taking captive of ideas. We take thoughts captive, we, we go against arguments against God, um, and, we're, and we are able to destroy strongholds, but they're spiritual strongholds, because the kingdom, that's, that's the way the kingdom of, of, of God is, is spread and takes dominion. Uh, and then the last passage, Romans 14, 13 through 19, please. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not, not to put a obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convicted that in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks that anything is to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of the food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy the existing for him by whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is holy or good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this world serves Christ, is acceptable to God, and approved by men. So then, we need to see these things which lead to peace and the growing up of one another. So the kingdom of God is not like other kingdoms, eating, drinking, stuff like that. It's of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. So essentially the fruit of the spirit is what citizens of the kingdom do. And that's what the kingdom is, is about, really. So that's just a brief uh, description of the, these passages of what citizens of the kingdom look like. Um, any quick questions before we go on to the law of the kingdom? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, question, but I think it's worth noting that how unique this idea of kingdom transference is to Christianity. I mean, and when you look at, you know, Islam and the way that kingdom was spread, or that, not that kingdom, that religion was spread, it was completely by the sword. Hmm. And this idea that we are, that our religion is spread strictly through spiritual means, through, mm -hmm. you know, declaring and, um, you know, presenting the gospel to people, it's mm -hmm. just such a unique concept, you know, um, that I use Islam as an extreme example, sure. but many other religions too, um, where it's spread in that way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the whole idea of kingdom. And yeah, kingdom. yeah. It could be or it could be any kind of earthly means. Uh, we we've seen false religions spread through 
through through money, you know, prosperity, false teaching, or the idea of just just getting more and more money. There's some odd things with Scientology. You know, you pay, you pay, you pay to to enter into higher and higher levels um, in that religion. Um, and then yeah, Islam is spread in a lot of ways through coercion, uh, kind of convert or. That's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, he was a warrior. That is correct. Yeah. So, no, that's a, that's a good point. Christianity is unique in that way. And although we've had, you know, there's been mistakes made. People have tried to spread the kingdom by the sword, like the, the earthly sword. That's not. That's never been blessed by God. That's always been a disobedience to His word. Because we do have a sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God is the weapon, along with prayer, fasting, and other things that we use. To, to conquer in that regard. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's look at the final aspect of a kingdom. A kingdom has a law, right? What, do you, what, you know, what is the king's command? Uh, so could someone please read Matthew 5, 17 through 20? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Yeah, so Christ has not come to lessen or abolish or destroy the law. It's fulfilled in him, of course. And the righteousness that, that is required is a perfect righteousness, which is, of course, found in Christ. And we are, his righteousness is accredited to us when we become believers. So it's all fulfilled in Christ, um, but he still wants us to do something. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to, to look at the law of God and, and pursue that. And, and, and those who uh, diminish it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but those who actually seek to obey it, not, not to make themselves uh, righteous or to earn their salvation, <clears throat> but those who love the king will obey the king, right? I mean, if they'll, they'll follow the king's commands and they'll want to live out their lives as, as kingdom citizens. And, and every, every nation on earth has different laws, right? And, and different ways of what it means to, to be an American citizen or a, 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 a German citizen or a Canadian citizen. There's different laws there. Uh, but, but Christ as king, he has a law for us, the way that we're supposed to obey as citizens. So uh, that's important to keep in mind. Uh, could someone please read Acts 26, 19 through 
You are out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> your great learning is driving you insane. <laughs> I am not insane, most excellent Peter Tessis, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this escaped his notice because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that such short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replies, short time or long time, I pray God that only you will be, excuse me, I pray that, that not only you will, but all the listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Yeah, yeah. So if, uh, at the beginning, he uh, describes to King Agrippa his mission, basically, and what he's been doing. And it, and it says in that very first uh, verse of 19 that he's calling people to repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So there is a, there's a sense in which we are all to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what we're to do uh, as Christians, bear fruit, the, the good fruit that makes sense. It's, it, it's evidence of your of your faith, and it's for all people. Uh, it's for kings and all those in authority, and, and Paul himself wants the kings, everyone there, King Agrippa, Governor Festus, he wants them all to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Whether that happens or not is in God's hands, but that's what Paul is yearning for there. Uh, could someone read Romans 13, 8 through 10, please? Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debts to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, or whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Yeah. So he lists, Paul here lists four of the ten commandments, and then he just kind of ends it by saying, and any other commandment that exists, so basically covers the entire Old Testament, is all summed up under loving your neighbor as yourself. So if someone were to ask, what does it mean to love your neighbor? The answer is, God shows us what it means in his commandments and in his law. You don't just get to make it up and, and, and choose your own adventure. Uh, it's not subjective feelings. Through All throughout scripture, love is not just a feeling. You're, you're actually commanded to love. Love is a choice and love is action. Uh, God commands us to love him and to love our neighbors. So, um, you know, and, and, that, and that, what does that look like? It looks like what we see uh, in, in God's law throughout Proverbs and throughout um, the first five books of the Bible and other parts of, of Scripture. Uh, and Paul just summarizes it here with, the, with four of the Ten Commandments. Uh, could someone read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 19, please? Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to, uh, to which God has called him. This is my will for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of this calling already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of this calling uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Um, for neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but only keeping the commands of God. <laughs> So, given that we live under the new covenant, uh, circumcision is no longer the covenant sign for us. 
whether one is circumcised or not, that's really no matter of salvation. And he says what matters is obedience to God. Like, if you wish to live the Christian life, don't get obsessed over whether to be circumcised or not. Don't, don't obsess over that, as some of the, uh, the Judaizers do in the book of Galatians, where they say that's a requirement, and one must become circumcised before one can become a Christian. Uh, Paul says, no, it's, that is no longer uh, applicable because we're under the new covenant, but what matters is obeying God as Christians. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like taking a look at what God has already taught us in his word and now looking at that in light of Christ. Now that Christ has come, what does it mean to not commit adultery or not commit murder or not steal or anything like that? What does Jesus have to say about that? Does he lessen it or does he strengthen it? And we, all, we see throughout scripture he strengthens it. Adultery is not just about not actually touching the person, but it's even lusting in your heart um, at that person you're already guilty of adultery. Murder is not just actually killing someone. It's you have hatred in your heart towards that person. You're already guilty in the eyes of God. So Jesus does not lessen the commandments. He, he strengthens them uh, and reveals them for what, what's the heart, what's the purpose there. And then the last uh, passage, would someone please read 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. So obeying God is evidence of our salvation. If we want to love our neighbor, we need to love God and obey him. And that's the evidence that we truly love God and truly love our neighbor. So to kind of summarize the point so far, what is the kingdom? Well, it's where Christ's will is being done. That's why we even pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want that kingdom to keep growing, to keep uh, arriving, to keep developing here on earth, just as it already is in heaven. In homes and workplaces, churches, schools and nations, in business, economics, science, art, music, education and law. Jesus is Lord of all of those things. He's not just Lord of your heart. He's, he's, he, he's the Lord of all of that because he's the maker of all things and all things hold together uh, in him. And, and the kingdom is still expanding. We read in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. It's still increasing. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. Hearts need to be redeemed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is really, this is a, an act of daily obedience with a long-term uh, vision. Would someone pre please read Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, please? Did I assign that to anybody? I may have failed that one. <laughs> There were a lot. It's fine. Well, I'll get it. We'll get it here. If anyone gets to that first, you win the prize. Because <laughs> I'm, I have this advantage. I have the old paper version of the Bible. You got it. Uh, by faith, Abraham obeyed <laughs> when he was called to go out to a place that he was uh, to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him 
of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, in that passage, is uh, is considered an example of faith. And he's obeying God. He's going living in tents. He's doing all these things. And he's looking forward to a city that is that's builder is God. So that, again, should bring our minds back to the stone not made of human hands, a kingdom that's built by God, not built by man, not by the work of man's hands. He's looking forward to the city that's made by God. But Abraham doesn't see it in his lifetime. In fact, God even tells Abraham it's going to be 400 years before your descendants even enter into the land. Um, you're going to be long, long dead before that. So, it, But yet he's still making altars, play, uh, uh, digging wells. He's still doing all these things in obedience to God, even if he doesn't see in his lifetime um, the fruits of that. And in a similar way, who would have thought when Jesus ascended into heaven and left his 11 mostly blue-collar workers uh, there, uh, that in 300 years the Roman Empire would be predominantly Christian? I mean, who, who could have even imagined that? Or even now we have believers in a continent thousands of miles away, 2,000 years later, now there's over a billion uh, followers of Jesus when there were maybe a handful to maybe a couple hundred when Jesus was walking on the earth. So as daily obedience with a long-term vision, we are to live our lives as Christians faithfully in all, all areas of, of what God has given us, wherever that might be, and we need to live as if we're going to have great-grandchildren, and we need to live as if there's going to be many more generations of, of believers to come. We don't, we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. And, and every generation thinks that Jesus is coming back in that generation. But the fact is, you just, we just don't know. And uh, it, is it possible that we're still in the early church, that there's going to be 5,000 more years before Christ returns? I suppose it's possible. Um, we need to be ready, of course, for, for Christ to return. But we need to act in obedience. But keeping that long-term vision in mind, we want the nations to be discipled. We want America, Canada, all those nations to become Christian and to start obeying God and not disobeying God. And that might not happen for a while, but that's still our long-term, long-term plan. Let me read to you a couple of, of, of key um, uh, uh, citations from several men I, I respect. One is uh, Professor Hodge. He lived in 1886, and he was a, um, a professor, uh, I think, at Princeton. And he spoke at, in Philadelphia 150 years ago. And here's what he said. A Christian is just as much under obligation to obey God's will in the most secular of his daily business as he is in his prayer closet or at the communion table. He has no right to separate his life into two realms and acknowledge different moral codes in each respectively. To say the Bible is a good rule for Sunday, but this is a weekday question, or the scriptures are the right rule in matters of religion, but this is a question of business or of politics. God reigns over all everywhere. His will is the supreme law in all relations and actions. His inspired word, loyally read, will inform us of his will in every relation and act of life, secular as well as religious. The kingdom of God includes all sides of human life, and it is a kingdom of absolute righteousness. And then one other citation from a, a person who's still alive today. Pastor Joseph Boot is a pastor in Canada, I believe Ottawa, Canada. And he uh, wrote this in a recent book of his. We are therefore called unequivocally to spread the culture of Christ to all creation. It is interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ likens himself to a farmer, planting and cultivating his seed of the kingdom of God throughout the world. 
The Christian state of being, like the mustard seed, grows and creates, as it has done wherever it has been in history. A type of civilization which, seen first in the church, spreads to impact all those around it as leaven transforms the whole loaf. Wherever God is served, worshipped, and glorified, there the kingdom of God is. Wherever God's children are faithful in preaching the gospel and pursue the cultural mandate to apply God's truth to every area of life, civilizations and cultures are recreated because people's state of being is actually transformed by regeneration. So what do redeemed spheres, going back to sphere sovereignty, what does that look like? Well, redeemed individuals, they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, redeemed families, it's fathers and, and mothers bearing the image of God together, training their children in the Lord. They have healthy marriages and discipled children. Um, uh, before I get to the redeemed nations part, one thing to keep in mind is that even the word economics, uh, if you look at the, at the origin of that word, it's Greek. It's oikonomos, house law. Economics starts with the house. It's the law of the house. And now we have this term economics, and we think that it's so, it's so complicated and confusing that you know, how, how can God's word apply to that? Well, it did originally because it had to do with how a household was ordered and how it would, would function. And then, oh, question? No? And then lastly, redeemed nations. We're to disciple the nations, right? I, you know, it's interesting that Jesus mentions nations. It's you disciple the nations. And we want rulers to submit to Christ's authority. We want uh, rulers to choose righteousness over sin. Does someone have Proverbs 14:34? If you could read that, please. Righteousness exalted nations, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Sin is a disgrace to any people. And righteousness exalts any nation, a nation, right? It's very generic because it applies to all. Uh, we want nations to avert God's judgment. Could someone read Jeremiah 18, 5 through 10, please? Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I have planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I have intended to do for it. Yeah. So we see. So yeah, God is talking uh, to the people of Israel through Jeremiah, and He's giving a very generic statement. Listen, any nation, any nation that repents. It'll, it'll be it'll be spared, and we see that with Nineveh, where where uh, uh, Jonah is is has to is, is commanded to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't want to, of course, but he ends up doing so, and of course Nineveh repents and is averted disaster, which Jonah didn't really want that to happen, but but it does, and uh, it's all part of God's uh, his grace, his mercy being shown. So, but any nation that is planted and that and that turns away from him, and that could be Israel, which Israel did. They will be judged, and they will be uh, kicked out of the land, which Israel was. So there's no double standards here. God has the same standard for all people and all nations. All are to repent and believe, and any that don't will be uh, judged accordingly. And wicked laws, interestingly, are a judgment. I didn't hand this one out, uh, but I want to read to you. I, I, I was looking over this a few, few days ago. 
uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 23 through 26, it's interesting. Uh, God is talking about Israel rebelling here, and he's talking about all these um, disciplines that he's, that he's doing to Israel to try to get them to stop sinning and to come back to the Lord. And he talks about pouring out his wrath upon them in the wilderness. But here's what he says. He says, uh, Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my commandments and profaned my sabbaths and their eyes were set on their on their father's idols moreover i gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life and i defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up all their firstborn that i might devastate them i did it that they might know that i am the lord so there's a sense here in which when israel rejects god's ways and they adopt evil pagan ways, sacrificing their children to Moloch and stuff like that. And God gives them over that. He says, okay, well, I'm just going to give you wicked rules, and you're, gonna, and you're not going to have life through them. You're going to get rules that lead to death. And so there's a sense in which um, a nation that, that makes wicked laws, that's actually a judgment from God. God is, is giving them wicked laws to judge them and to hopefully bring them to repentance. That's what he's, that's what he's trying to do. He wants Israel to repent but they keep saying no, no, no. So ultimately, in the end, uh, the kingdom of God uh, is one that has authority over all spheres of life, and Jesus has something to say about every sphere, as individual believers, as families, as churches, and yes, even as nations and governments. He's the Lord of all, and so what, what we are called to do as believers, and what we'll get more into more next week is, um, we want, we should keep this vision in mind, even if it's not even real right now. Um, again, uh, the disciples, they had, a, they had a lot of obstacles in front of them to conquer the Roman Empire. And, and all, almost all of them died as martyrs before it happened. But there was eventually a time, 300 years later, when even emperors became Christians and decided to make good laws instead of wicked laws, to, to, to end infanticide, to end abortion, uh, to end the Colosseum and, and the butcher that was taking place there, and to try to uh, uh, obey, obey the Lord and recognize Jesus as the ruler of kings on, on earth. So we should want for that as well, whether we see that in our lifetime or not. Let's just be daily faithful. So uh, any questions? comments I want to open up for that I don't I do have some more things to cover but we'll have to cover it next time because we are I, I want to respect everyone's time and, and, and offer some time for some discussion um, any thoughts questions comments yes no you guys are easy today you guys are super easy today my goodness all right well look um, I wanted to go I don't want to go into this too much there, so I'm just going to say, look, uh, we can look at the purpose of the law next time, like kind of how to um, take God's law and apply it on a, on, a, on a daily basis in every area of our life, um, but we'll, we'll cover that sometime in the, in the future. So uh, I just want to point out that next week I will be away, so Brad here, everyone see Brad, there he is, wave. <laughs> We'll be leading our discussion. We'll be I looking. Apologize in advance. No. <laughs> no.
So I think he'll be leading uh, you guys on a, on a talk about how to live faithfully as, as Christians today, as citizens. What does that look like? I mean, are you supposed to be part of a political party? Are you supposed to go protest things? Are you supposed to, you know, set things on fire? I don't know. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll cover all that, right, I imagine. So no pressure on, on Brad here. So, but, so anyways, thank you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we, we thank you again for this time that you've given us. Um, we praise you, Lord, for it. We praise you for your word, that you've given us such a, a powerful word, a clear word. Um, and, Lord, we praise you that uh, you have set your son upon the throne and that we get to uh, faithfully walk and serve, serve him. Lord, help us now as we go into worship to worship Christ as King of Kings, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. Of course, if you have any questions or comments or if you're part of the class and didn't get a chance to have your question answered, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Gab, all those locations, find Governed by God, and uh, send me a message that way. Also, feel free to share this to more folks. Again, uh, we want to get this out there to as many people as possible to equip the saints to understand what the scripture has to say about government and our role as citizens of both heaven and earth. So thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, take care and God bless.